I use the word contradiction all the time, but I, I, if I were asked to define it, I genuinely have no idea what, what that means. You mean like contradiction as a social phenomena or a social structure, not contradiction as a logical, like, you know, the principle of non-contradiction or something. I am literally asking you because I feel like there's... <laughs> yeah. Like, have, yeah. Why, why, are you, why are you trying to disavow your responsibility? I'm Gil. Here with me today is Lillian. Hello. Will. Hey. And Owen. What's good? On today's episode, we're talking about the work of George Lukacs, in particular his important 1923 book, History and Class Consciousness. Lucio Coletti once called it the first Marxist book after Marx, and it almost single-handedly made Marxism into a serious and respectable philosophical position. I'm tempted to say it's the most important work of Marxist philosophy in the early 20th century. Lukács with this book is considered to be one of the founders of a tradition uh, referred to as Western Marxism, a term that rose to prominence with Maurice Merleau-Ponty's 1955 book, Adventures of the Dialectic. To be quick about it, Western Marxism can be understood as differing from the classical interpretation of Marx and Engels, as well as from so-called orthodox Marxism and Leninist philosophy. On this reading, Marxism is not just a new take on political economy, nor a sociological point of view, nor a science of history. Instead, Lukács stressed the Hegelian aspects of Marxist thought, articulating Marxist philosophy as a critical enterprise that seeks to revolutionize society, through the proletarian classes coming to self-understanding. We read the central essay of the book, uh, Reification and the Consciousness of the Proletariat, which explores some of these ideas. The essay is frankly kind of staggering in its philosophical sophistication and the depth of its analysis. So I'm going to try to very briefly lay out some of the main lines of thought before opening it up for all of you. Lukács develops, first of all, this central idea of reification, he frames this as an extension of Marx's analysis in the first chapter of Capital Volume 1 of the commodity form, and particularly of what Marx calls commodity fetishism. Now, I know all you three know this, but for the benefit of the listener, let me run that down real fast. By commodity fetishism, Marx means that relations between people come to appear as relations between things. Most obviously, the exchange value of a commodity, its price, is completely socially determined, right? It's a function of social relations, and it expresses something about the relationships between people as members of a society. But it looks like it's an objective quality of the thing, right? It looks like a static property that the commodity simply has. It appears as though the commodity possesses its price as a simple objective feature or a physical characteristic, but in truth, it's a function of social relations. Marx writes, quote, the mysterious character of the commodity form consists simply in the fact that the commodity reflects the social characteristics of men's own labor as objective characteristics of the product of labor themselves, as socio-natural properties of these things, end quote. Reification, for Lukács, is the name for the fact that this commodity form progressively expands into all aspects of society. 
The fetishized commodity form, this substitution where social relations appear as abstract objective features, becomes the exclusive form of appearance of objects. And at the same time, as I said, he's a good Hegelian, this universal dominance of the commodity form as the form of objectivity also means that it becomes the exclusive form of subjectivity as well. This has massive wide-ranging consequences. First, just as the commodity's exchange value, numerical thing, comes to dominate over its qualitative physical characteristics, its use value, throughout society we see a similar reduction of quality to quantity. Subjectively and objectively, quantitative calculative rationality erases the supposed irrationality of qualitative differences and concrete singularity, washing them away in increasingly abstract properties. This abstraction makes everything a matter of detachable properties. Everything, both stuff that's external to us as well as we ourselves, comes to seem like it's just a mere bundle of properties that can be possessed or not and disposed of at will. We lose a sense of organic unity. This happens, for instance, in faculty psychology, where instead of treating a mind as something with some kind of holistic unity, we abstract out the different parts and treat them as really separable. You've got the rational part of your brain, the thinking part, the judging part, the aesthetic part. Or again, our relationships to others appear as detachable from us, and we become relatively indifferent to them. Just as the commodity appears abstracted from its process of production, and its value appears abstracted from the social relations that are their real ground, we become these isolated, atomized individuals in bourgeois society. We become fully alienated from our own activity as workers, and the products of our labor confront us as an alien power that seems to follow objective laws that escape our control. So there's a kind of violent fragmentation involved in this phenomenon of reification, the splitting of individuals, subject and object alike, into abstract bundles of properties lacking any real unity or organic connection to concrete genesis. At the same time, however, this process is tied to a real unity in the form of totality. After all, we said that the commodity form becomes the dominant form of objectivity and subjectivity in society, and that process is universal in its scope. This has its roots in the universalizing movement of capitalism itself, which of course commodifies everything in the mad pursuit of the accumulation of value. Capitalism is a radically totalizing social system, and its fragmentation, consequently, is total as well. This is part of why Lukács argues for the philosophical significance of Marxism. It's not just empirical sociology or a new take on political economy, precisely because it retains this category, totality, without which this contradictory unity of fragmentation and universality in capitalism would be impossible to grasp. Lukács thinks, good dialectician that he is, that there are real contradictions here, ones that cannot be handled properly by bourgeois philosophy. The antinomies of the thing in itself have their real ground here, he argues, in the structure of the commodity form having become the universal form of thought and objectivity as a historical phenomenon. Now, of course, bourgeois philosophy thinks that it does handle these contradictions and antinomies properly by declaring them to be unresolvable. But that's because it's prey to an illusion. It thinks it has a universal perspective on society, but in the final twist here, Lukács says, no, it does not. The proletariat does. So the standpoint of the proletariat for Lukács is bound up with everything that we've said so far. It is, he says, the universal class. And that is a historically novel phenomenon. No class prior to it has ever had this universal status. If capitalism's commodification is total, 
if this process of reification is universal, then the proletariat is the negative of this totalizing process of abstraction. And as he writes, quote, the self-understanding of the proletariat is therefore simultaneously the objective understanding of the nature of society. He argues that although for bourgeois and proletarian alike, the immediate appearance of things is totally abstract and reified, the proletariat, however, has access through collective struggle to forms of mediation that give the lie to that appearance. Things get, I want to say, kind of speculative and a little unhinged at this point, if they haven't already seemed a little weird to you. Lukács gets almost prophetic toward the end of the essay when it comes to the standpoint of the proletariat. He says things that like, you know, the contradictions of bourgeois life and the commodity form will dissolve in the development of proletarian self-understanding. The thing in itself will dissolve as the proletariat becomes the self-conscious subject object of world history and class antagonism is brought to an end. <laughs> Let's like, go. New forms of ob- yeah, it's tight, <laughs> Let's go. but it's also bananas. Right, right? Yeah. New forms of objectivity and consciousness will emerge, but they'll no longer be forms in which objects stand over against isolated subjectivity. Uh, what else? Time will no longer be dominated by space, you know, and so on and so on, right? <laughs> so there's like a lot to say. There's a lot more to say. Uh, I think the text is electric. It's super dense. Uh, and its aspirations and its scope are probably impossible to overstate. So hopefully I've done a halfway decent job at giving out a, a rough sketch of what's going on here. And I'm excited to hear what you all have to say about it. Yeah, I, I have many thoughts. One, that was an amazing introduction. Yeah. That was awesome, Gil. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, so, Gil. So let's just like, you know, maybe just to kick things off, what does Lukács mean by the proletariat? So from what I understand of your engagements with Lukács, um, one might think that for Lukács, a proletariat is merely a sort of sociological category. I, I, I don't think that that's what it is, because if it were that, then you know, he would fall prey to the critique that people often throw at Lukács is, you know, you say the proletariat is, and let's just say the strange phrase is, the subject object of history. Um, that you know, the proletariat has this universal perspective. But then I go and talk to Joey Proletariat on the street, and it really does not seem as if he has some deeper insight to things than, than I do. And Lukács does address this. He goes, well, you no, know, of course. In, you know, empirical consciousness is you know, um, the same as you know, the empirical consciousness of, of the bourgeois. But the distinction I've seen in secondary literature is between you know, um, empirical consciousness and imputed consciousness. And I think it's imp- the imputed consciousness for Lukács is he's saying as a philosophical category, this is the function the proletariat would have to fulfill. And this can be true irrespective of whether the proletariat actually does accomplish this mission and also irrespective of what you know, Joey Prohl is thinking in that particular moment. And so there's a there's you know what I find interesting there Joey is Joey Prohl the plumber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> jo- yeah, I'm talking about like you know back in 1920 <laughs> it was you know Joey Prohl but now he's a plumber now. Um, and so what's interesting there is you know Lukács you know, he clearly does not because part of reification is you know, the abstracting away of of things that belong in some sort of totality or unity. But he's trying to understand so what is the relationship between the empirical sociological category of the proletariat 
period and the philosophical um, social totality concept of the proletariat. And so I guess you know, my question is, you know, is it that the philosophical concept you know, in a way precedes the empirical concept or is, does it inhere in the very actual living proletariat or is the proletariat a stand-in for the subject that would unify society, even if that doesn't actually happen. So to, to kind of clean up my question, the fact that this, you know, that uh, time is no longer dominated by space, all those things <laughs> that Gill said, the fact that that didn't happen, does that quote unquote disprove what Lukács um, wrote? I'm inclined to think not, but from what I gather, many people approach Lukács as if to say, well, these things didn't happen, so clearly you're reductive and you didn't get it. Yeah, I like that. I like that question. I mean, I guess what, this is not going to be a sufficient answer, but one of the things that comes to mind is some of the language he uses when he describes the way that the proletariat and the bourgeoisie respectively relate to the illusions that exist within reified, you know, capitalist society. You know, he says they both live under the same illusions, but there's something in the experience of the proletariat that compels them to surpass those illusions. So th there's a need that exists. Whether, they, whether the need comes to like manifest itself in the actual surpassing of the illusions or not, there's something he says that like forces the worker. There's a need that compels them to, to take on a role that is not just one more interest group inside of the social totality, but more this kind of historic role. Um, so I don't know, maybe that need or that, that set that that part of them that is compelled because of they live that contradiction and become self-conscious of that contradiction between, like Gil was saying in the beginning, between quantity and quality, right? They know themselves as a qualitative you know, existence. They, have, they are humans with feelings and desires and needs, and they are reduced at every turn to quantitative calculation, the amount of labor time, the amount of, you know, the, their wage, et cetera, right? And so like, and so they, they know that contradiction and that compels, there's some need in them to surpass. They, the illusion is less, I guess, it works less compellingly on them than it does on, on the bourgeois class. So I don't know, maybe that's one place to look to, to start answering that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of, as this is an idea I think that Lukács himself like draws attention to in this like transition from, you know, in Marx's Capital One, from like the sphere of exchange or circulation to the sphere of production, where like you're looking at the same process, but everything changes its tone and tenor, right? Everything's got a different sort of valence where we're no longer thinking about like the kind of niceties of exchange and instead are noticing the kinds of ways in which like, yeah, violent subjection and coercion are at every stage of the process required and mandated. And it is at least... I mean, to go back to your question, Will, like, you, you, you gave a couple of candidates for how to think the relationship between empirical and imputed consciousness. And I'd like to think through this a little more carefully, right? It's as though there is a, a possibility for this class consciousness on the part of the proletarian to form. And it's not just a virtue. It's not just a potentiality, right? Like, there are, like, moments of in which that self-understanding clearly does exist. But also we do have to live with this gap and try to make sense of, you know, wh why is it that empirical consciousness lags behind the position that Marxism would like to impute to it? Yeah, maybe we could say that, like, because they are themselves commodified, labor time is itself commodified, the life process of the workers itself commodified, that they're uniquely well situated to understand yeah. the commodity form as the dominant and determining form of capitalist society, whether the step is taken 
to actually understanding, achieving that self-understanding and understanding of social totality or not. I think, yeah, I think that's right. And so I guess, you know, one, one might wonder, here's the way that, that I will put it. So the proletariat has, you know, this standpoint that Lukács is realizing they are the only class that through their self-understanding will, you know, be able to dispel the illusions of, of reification. My question is, how is that markedly different than Lukács, who we might assume is not a proletariat, but he has worked this out? So does that mean that it is in principle, like you know, some, you know, the bourgeoisie, what if they read Lukács and they, they agree? Is there, is there something different hmm. uh, in the proletariat than simply understanding what Lukács said? What, what is missing here? I mean, I think the, the thing that's missing is going to have to do something with praxis. Yeah, but yep. you know, I think it's important to, you know, to, to cash out. Lukács is clearly making more of a statement than we need to get our philosophical argument that the ducks in a row and thus that creates some sort of social transformation instead you know what he's saying is that you know maybe there has to be a convergence with um self-understanding and material interest for this to be to be the motor but i guess i'm trying to work through you know what's the relation between the philosophical argument that he makes that if we accept it but simply accepting it is not enough to break through the illusion of reification the last thing I was going to say is um, reification's relationship to commodity fetishism. Is it simply a distortion of how things appear to us, or is it also related to how we are coerced to conduct ourselves in such a society? That even mm -hmm. if we um, see through the abstraction, we must still live and act as if the abstraction were real. Very important point. I think that's absolutely right. So I think that maybe it's it might be helpful to try to understand why this is not like standpoint epistemology as we usually understand it. There's some analogous lines of reasoning, but I think it specifically has to do with the commodity form, how universal you think that is, and then whether or not that has significance for the dynamics of social change equally as universally. So like, mm -hmm. um, it's not just a way of knowing relative to social position. It's a way of knowing relative to a total social process. And the what you do in that social process has reverberations for the totality in a distinct way. Mm -hmm. So I think this distinct way that's on offer is that is the distinction Marx makes between labor and labor power, which, you know, some time ago, I didn't actually understand was it, what was at stake in this at all. I was like, okay, people keep making that distinction and it is whatever, you know, you sell your labor. And, but I think that, that that's really key for Lukács because it, you don't just sell your labor, you sell your labor power, which means that the, that the commodity that the individual laborer becomes, that's what the abstraction is. Like, and that's what the reification is. There's a part of you that uh, becomes separate from you and the same from you at the same time. This is very strange. So then commodity fetishism is a way of objectifying yourself at the same time that you are, that others are objectifying you in this process. And then like, I, I guess the, the, the point is, is that because proletarians are commodified in this way, 
they, when they start getting together to try to act on their interests, they might see that these interests very narrowly, and even the institutions that they that they create might see their interests very narrowly. But the act of having to organize such a diverse plurality of needs and interests kind of creates a counter hegemonic effect in a way that, um, like that, hmm. that that other kinds of organization does does not, and that's what creates the the universal class. There's this kind of capacity for like you know what would later in the Marxist tradition be, or I guess maybe earlier with Gramsci be called the you know counter hegemony. And, and that whole analysis depends on, on how much you buy the, the universalizing concept of. So you, it's universal relative to a universal. It's not like universal relative to like anything period ever. Yeah. And then like mm-hmm. if you know if you don't think that capitalism has those qualities, then this is just not going to work for you. Yeah, a lot hinges on the extent to which the commodity form is the arch determining structure of capitalist society as a whole. Maybe, maybe it's like worth actually th- like pausing and talking a little bit about what he thinks like bourgeois thought is and why it gets things wrong, right? Because mm-hmm. he has this and why mm-hmm. pl- proletarian class consciousness is obviously different and more, you know, better situated or uniquely situated to understand social totalities. So like he says about bourgeois thought that I mean, there's a number of things about it, but one of the most important things is that it's like hyper rational about like isolated, restricted phenomena, but incapable of understanding in any rational way what the social totality is doing, right? So it understands some particular aspect of the production process. It understands some aspect of like the science of mining or something, right? But when it comes to the actual whole of what is, you know, what is the logic of this system? What is it doing? Where is it going? Where does it come from? they are stuck in, well, I find it really interesting. He says they get stuck in a number of like illusions that he says you can see in bourgeois, what he calls bourgeois philosophy. So you take like Adam Smith and there's like really minute analyses of like aspects of capitalist exchange. But then there's this thing like the invisible hand, which is the explainer of the social totality, which comes in like as a kind of, you know, short circuit to explain the social totality. It's the same thing with Kant who ends up with like a notion of the progress of history that he can't really found in his like his his science of cognition so he has this thing called like a moral world author which comes in, which which we can't prove but we can have the idea of based it, it allows us it allows <laughs> us to guild just starts dying yeah but like the moral world world author is like a, a short circuit to making sense of the whole right uh, to make sense of mm-hmm. where like the whole of history is going and making sense of the of like totality um, mm-hmm. And so if the commodity form is the structure, that, the thing that gives structure to the totality of capitalism, that suffuses and determines all aspects of political, social, cultural life like in capitalism, mm-hmm. and the proletariat as a commodified entity themselves is uniquely situated to understand that process of commodification, including its contradictions and whatever – then they are in a position to make sense of the social totality in a way that when you're only focused on the kind of like hyper scientific understanding of isolated aspects of society, you'll never be able to make sense of. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. What's key. And I liked your language of the short circuit, you know, I, I want to like, you know, throw this at you, but I was hearing a little bit of Zizek there. I mean, yeah, that term, that term is definitely a term that, yeah, too much Zizek. On yeah. YouTube, I'm not saying maybe, you were doing so, that, yeah. but yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> it is, it is a term that I probably have just, yeah, imbibed from him. 
But it seems the problem with bourgeois thought is that it can't think mediation. So it has to right. constantly yes. make these leaps from the particular to the universal. And what Lukacs does really well in that long second section is, you know, none of these things are really able to bring these two things together. It's just, you know, kind of a hodgepodge of, like, there has to be something, mm -hmm. uh, but also there's this particular, and so mash them together and that gives you totality. But he's very clear, to whatever he means by social totality, and I want to go too quickly on this, is not you just add A, B, C, D up, and then mm -hmm. you have totality. It's not like you enumerative. And so what he means by the philosophical concept of totality is seeing how the you know the logic of the of the whole is even expressed in the very particular activities in which you engage. And yeah. so it seems to me that the proletariat, their standpoint is different because you know, they do not have the luxury of disavowing or not understanding the rich mediations that are layered within their lives. That you know when they go to do X, you know, they, they see that it doing X involves this whole series of relations and social logics and constraints. When they go to do Y, they find these relations of logics and constraints. And so it is not for them a simply academic exercise. I think he, right. you know, pejoratively calls the contemplative mm -hmm. um, attitude of, you know, so there's you at work, there's you at home. There's you in a social club. There's you da da, and you know those things simply fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. But there isn't any imminent reason that unites why those activities take the form that they do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think what's like really important. And when he was talking, I've been listening to this um, uh, podcast, and I've actually found it like really helpful to really get inside the brain of liberalism. So many of the people who come to the podcast, they are deeply hostile to the notion of Which social totality. Yeah, what are you uh, talking? Wait, do you want to so, name I'll, them? Um, <laughs> do it. Do it. Drop it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, uh, Gil, you can edit this out. It is called... Mm, which, okay. well done, by the way. Great stuff on there. Uh, trying, trying to be, you know, like, I can listen to uh, people I disagree with. But this notion that there is a whole they are deeply antagonistic mm -hmm. to because there's no way you could ever know that. You know, all of these people on there who would describe, describe themselves as classically liberal, they all say something Lukács would hate, which is we could never know. We could yeah. never know <laughs> about these interests. And so that's why liberalism is really important. That's a Hayek vibe, it, though, right? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's because that's why planning is impossible. That's why crises are never imminently engendered. That's why they're always like exogenous shocks. Like, yeah. And there can be no sense of unification. They're just irreconcilables. You know, you believe X, I believe Y, nothing will bring these two things together. So better to leave the space open rather than what, you know, Lukács calls the social totality. The proletariat really actually encapsulates this form of life so that we can go beyond it, which means enclosing it rather than simply opening it up. So I just want to ask quickly, because I think what you're getting at is the problem of contradiction. And I've always wondered what the contra like what a contradiction actually is for Same. Uh, for Lukács. All right, for well, let's just hammer that out real fast. <laughs> yeah, let's, I mean, I just think it would be useful because like what I was saying earlier about like the way that working people, if they organize themselves and they have to get all these interests together, um, and then they have to kind of confront the labor process and their own objectification. I feel like the thing, so there's interests involved there, but in order to coordinate those interests, like if there were no contradiction, there would be no problem. But it's like having to do that and to confront 
a contradictory reality. And it's in that confrontation that they become the subject object. And I, I don't, I genuinely don't know what the con like I use the word contradiction all the time, but I, I, if I were asked to define it, I genuinely have no idea what, what that means. You mean like contradiction as a social phenomenon or a social structure, not contradiction as a logical, like, you know, the principle of non-contradiction or something. I am literally asking you because I feel like <laughs> yeah. Have, yeah. Why, why are you, why are you trying to disavow your responsibility? I feel like <laughs> you know, the, three, the three of us should be able to hammer something out that is useful. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I'll offer myself up as, as tribute. So what you know, Lukács uh, means by contradiction is clearly something more substantive than abstract disagreement. It is not, uh, let's say, water is the opposite of fire. What I think you're supposed to get with the notion of contradiction that you know, Lukács is clearly getting from Hegel is you know, a contradiction that is, you know, one, it is not arbitrary or contingent. It is, you know, it is necessary to this form of life that we have. Two, a contradiction is not something that you can simply evade as if there was some conceptual error, but it is, yeah. you know, um, so let's use language of social forces or objects. They not only oppose one another, but they also constitute one another at the same time. And so reification, think of it this way. Reification is a contradiction insofar as it is something that, you know, Lukács thinks, you know, it harms our understanding of the world, but you can't simply abstract it out as if this was um, a logical error. It is actually something required by and you know, what it means to have a society structured by the commodity form. So all at once, it brings together our social activities, and yet it also prevents us from understanding our social activities and social life. And so one might think, of, you know, in the more sort of liberal vein, there aren't contradictions. There are disagreements, and we can kind of tame those disagreements or decide which disagreements are less necessary, less important. But I think a robust understanding of contradiction is to say that this isn't a deformation of this form of life. It is actually necessitated by it. And it also is what opens the way to an alternative or a new form of life because it shows that this form of life is inherently unstable. But ne again, necessarily so. So it's not something you can simply manage and tamp down. So I'll, I'll hand it over to Gil there. I did yeah. my best. Yeah, I think that's right. I'd also add that, like, I mean, I think for, for Lukács, it seems like there's a couple of things that he points to as contradictions. But the, the one that I keep coming back to and which I think that must be maybe most important for him has to do with, like, the apparent contradiction between, like, uh, atomization or, like, isolated fragmentation and, like, unity or totalization. And this is something that he ties, again, specifically to capitalism as a mode of social organization as something historically novel, where like previous forms of social organization were nothing other, I think he would say, were nothing other than these sorts of conflicts of interests that Will was just talking about. But that like, we want to use the word, like the language of universality. We want to say something like, we are all alone and isolated, right? Mm -hmm. That's an immediate contradiction. Because if we're all this way, mm -hmm. then we're not alone. 
but it's also the case that like we're saying something real about at the very least our subjective lived experience if not something more more strongly objectively true about this social form and the proletariat is the for the first time able to like say something like that concretely and adequately right the bourgeois mm-hmm. can't say that but so it's like how do you how do you come to recognize or understand that we are all atomized in fact means that we aren't at the same time, right? That there is an objective basis for a concrete universality there in the form of struggle or of emancipation. Mm-hmm. It's something new. I mean, this is all trying to get at like your, to, to answer your question, Lillian. And, and I think we both immediately will. And I like, yeah, we're not obviously talking about logical contradiction. We're doing something much closer to like a, like a Hegelian social understanding of contradiction. It is something that's built into the structure of, of society and social life. The other, the other version of this that I was thinking about, right. Is that like, you know, he seems to have this very, you know, we were talking before we started recording about how like cool it is to go back to these older thinkers and how non beholden they are to contemporary academic fads are, but like, he's like a real process thinker or like Mm -hmm. someone who's really interested in like relations and how relations give rise to things that then look like they're Mm non-relational, right? And that, again, is a necessary illusion, a necessary form of appearance of the kind of world in which we live. And the question isn't like, okay, dispel it, right? Dispel the, uh, just, okay, so stop thinking about stuff as stuff. Like, yeah, this glass of boba tea I got, that's not really a thing. It's actually a set of relations. Like, that's a very silly thing to suggest, (laughs) right? It It is obviously both, but there's something about the way in which these things appear as static, as abstract, as isolated, you know, without any real unity or connection to these processes and relationships that that's, there's something about that, uh, that appearance, that form of appearance that needs to be, needs to be broken through. And he thinks right or wrong. Again, this is maybe where he's, like I said, it gets real messianic and bananas toward the end of the piece. He just thinks that like, this is the proletariat's job historically (laughs) (laughs) and 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 something that it's uniquely capable of doing because of its social and historical situation yeah and but i also want to add to that it's it's not not logical contradiction so um yeah i think so too i'm glad you said that i was like oh god i'm yeah Yeah, because, you know, the society of reification, you know, if we want to put a phrase that sounds logically contradictory yet captures the social totality is it is, you know, antisocial sociality. It is, you know, if we wanted to put it in like a nice formological proof, it is, you know, A and not A. And one might think, well, you you can't have your cake and eat it too. Either this is a deeply antisocial place and the problem is we don't have sociality and, the, and thus we need that sort of like romantic anti-capitalist critique of, you know, capitalism destroyed the communal bonds. We're no, you know, we no longer have families. We no longer have clans, whatever. You know, that's sort of, you know, historically the romantic anti-capitalist critique. Or you have sociality and it turns out, well, no, it's not antisocial. This is just a new way for us to be together. And it's great. We're not like you know, our lives aren't hinged to these weird traditional hierarchies to nature, etc. And Lukács would say, "Well, you're not thinking through the process that this uh, antisociality is a form that yokes us together as a, a social group." And us now, I'm thinking of like talking as the proletariat. That the proletariat can understand living, you know, subjectively and objectively this uh, relationship of antisocial totality of you know, being all at once 
deprived of the linkages that would allow for cooperation in your interests, and yet being bound together within a social form that you cannot escape. And it seems to me buried in, in Lukaccio, and then I'll say the other thing about what Gil said at the end, buried in Lukacs, yeah, there's a messianism, but I guess he thinks it's different than the utopianism because he thinks, you know, yeah. there is a drive in life to have some sort of logical, logically consistent unity. And that's why he describes the proletariat subject-object to finally bring these to, together in rich mediation, which is exactly what the commodity form does not let us do. We're yoked together, and yet our very modes of being yoked together tend to attenuate and weaken our social bonds. But you're right. There is something very strange. That while I was reading Lukács, I was like, ew, isn't this also a form of a, a type of functionalism that's going on here? That you know, even though Lukács wants to speak to the subjective, it seems as if you know, for Lukács, it is really objective constraints that slot us you know, impersonally into roles we are forced to play. And that is, you know, the part that I thought is harder for him to bring together because all at once the commodity form yokes us into these roles that we cannot simply just subjectively put down. And yet self-knowledge and experience are important for the overcoming of, of these um, reified relations. Why do you call it a, fu- what do you say, functionalism? What, I'm not sure I followed that. By um, functionalism, I guess what I, what I mean is these sets of relations are such because they are of a benefit to the social totality, to capitalist society. And so, you know, um, the proletariat is in this position, not simply because of forces of violence and domination, but because, you know, that is the way this society has to be arranged in order to reproduce itself. Uh, the, the type of critique of functionalism is it, it drains out notions of, uh, of conflict conflict and it overly rationalizes as if there were a moral world author <laughs> who's like okay. proletariat goes here capitalists go there bourgeoisie goes there and that's how this is all, all all arranged and so it can seem as if when he is talking about the role of the proletariat is that you know this will be what you know they must right. do this yeah. will be their function I mean, this is interesting, too, because like so one of the other things that people often say about Lukács is that he sort of anticipated like he he writes this like a decade or so before the publication of the 1844 manuscripts. And like a lot of like the the humanist Marxism that we get in the 20th century based on that places special emphasis on this like concept of alienation. Right. For which it's alternatively celebrated or, or condemned. And Lukács has already got his sort of finger on this, and it's sort of like, uh, you know, what people say is that it's, like, validated. His analysis is sort of validated after the fact by the publication of the 1844 manuscripts because you don't need a moral author of the world for things to have this kind of functionally coordinated structure, right? Like, the thing about capitalism is that it is, in fact, a unified economic system. It actually does organize society in these ways with, yes, you know, some deleterious social consequences. We all know how bad it is for your, for your body to be part of the division of labor. But on the other hand, like, great. look at what it does, though, right? On the other hand, right? And this is the sort of thing. It prepares the way for something like a universal self-understanding and the possibility of 
grasping society as a totality by its own imminent logic, which he thinks, following Marx and Capital One, is already there contained in the commodity form. It's already there. And, you know, there was, as he cites Marx saying, like, sure, there was commodity exchange in previous modes of social organization. It didn't become this, though. Mm -hmm. It didn't become like a universal totalizing, all-encompassing structure, which, I mean, you said at the beginning, one of you said, like, everything seems to hinge on whether or not we buy that. But, like, I don't know how you could refuse the claim in a certain sense. Like, you know, being honest, looking around at the world in which we live, like, a universal commodification seems to just be a fact, you know, I don't know what really does escape it. And like, I'm not, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you all think about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's the odd, I guess, like welfare state attempt to like shield certain things. Like, I don't know, healthcare from commodification. It doesn't obviously entirely do that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, by the way, maybe I, the, maybe I only yeah. really think that it's yeah. universal because I live in the United States. Yeah. I mean, the U S is for sure the purest <laughs> example, but check your privilege, sir. <laughs> Sit down and listen. Yeah. I mean, I feel like from like critical theory land, the objection is usually that like ontologically speaking, it can't be commodities all the way down. And normally people talk like if if they, because the thought is that if that were true, then you can't have conflict or there's nothing in subjectivity that's external to the commodity form, and therefore there's no basis for social mm. criticism and subjectivity. I'd be interested to know what you think about that. I feel less and less compelled by that claim because I feel like the argument that he's making is that there is indeed well, I, yeah. ba- a base. But anyway, and then the other thing is usually yeah. like a, a Neil Polanian. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I don't think he would disagree with that. Right. I, I think that the other argument is like a Neil Polanian argument where like, the true motion of capitalist society is a movement of marketization and resistance to marketization. So you're never mm. going to have total commodification, and that's what creates conflict in capitalist societies. Yeah. Maybe the way to reconcile it is to say that like, it, the commodity has a structuring function over everything, but it doesn't subsume everything without remainder, right? Like, it quantifies and it seeks to quantify everything, but there's still a kind of qualitative element of life that... I don't know if you would put it this way, but it is never entirely or fully subsumable within that quantitative totality, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I think Lukács, you know, we're catching him at a period. And again, I'm in no way a Lukács scholar, but I've just randomly read stuff recently. So don't hold me to this. But, you know, before he wrote this, Lukács, Lukács went through a real sort of Kierkegaardian romantic phase when he's talking yes. about mm-hmm. aesthetics and the novel. And he's working his way out. of it. But then you see glimmers of it here. Where he's talking about how reification attempts to like you know, to harm and mutilate the very force of human life, and you know, and yet it doesn't go all the way to to doing it. So I think he's trying to work his way out of it because I when we do our episode on Ernst Bloch, this is going to come up where Ernst Bloch thinks that there's there's something indomitable. There's a there is you know a material essence of utopianism that is continually pushing back against mm. the attempts to capture and mutilate it. But I think. Lukács is trying to work his way out of that because I, I think I more agree with you, Owen, but I wonder if what Lukács is saying is, well, the reason why there's a critical vantage point is because this is a, a social totality that's inherently contradictory. It actually mm-hmm. calls forth in this very movement of totalization, universalization, its own critique. And so there isn't a need to posit something that escapes 
its movement. It is that you know the movement to commodify, to create what I was calling this antisocial sociality, you know, is also going to you know necessarily draw forth the critical vantage point of the proletariat that can no longer live within that um, uh, social contradiction. Mm. And yeah, I've been thinking about that that as well. I believe you know Nancy Fraser, I think you know, says a little bit about you know it's not commodities all the way down in the book Capitalism with Rahel Yegi. And I think that doesn't quite touch what Lukacs is doing because I think for him, the critical consciousness isn't something that must be conserved from the commodity form. It's that mm. the commodity form, given the commodity it's engaging with, which is the labor, the proletariat, the human spirit, is, is going to be the critical edge. It ge- that are generating, very, yeah. It's yeah. going to generate it. And so I think, <laughs> you know, yeah. with me on this. And I always love getting this snaps from Owen. Yeah. I and thought so that was brilliantly put. <laughs> I think yeah. that's the Lukacian response to that. Well, it made sense to Owen. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, like, add to that, like, you know, it's not, about, it's not so much about commodification as like a, yeah. as like a, to say like an actual process, right? Like we're not talking so much about like taking stuff that was in the commons and making it accept, like available to like market mediation. For him, he's much more interested in commodity in the commodity as a form, right? And as a form of subjectivity and of objectivity. You know, I was thinking about like in another another way of trying to get at the like what is a contradiction question. Like you read the first critique by Kant, which he's obviously read very carefully. And you got this like whole set of problems about like how does the subject actually interact with anything actual, the thing in itself, in consciousness. And you have to just introduce, like you said, bourgeois thought can't can't think mediation. So he just like jams the schematism in there and he's like, the schematism does mm-hmm. it. It's the thing that mediates between subject and object. And you read that chapter and it's like, I don't know how this is supposed to solve any of the problems. <laughs> it's like, this is just like a thing. And Lukacs is like, I've got an answer to that question. How do the subject and object get mediated? And the answer is the schematism is provided to you by the commodity form. The commodity form is the schematism. So it's doing a much deeper, like logical work than just privatizing or marketizing things, right? Like that's why he thinks he's examining aspects of commodity logic when he's reading like Kant's Critique of Pure Reason and the Critique of Judgment, right? Like there he's examining commodity logic. And so it's it's a facet, it is so pervasive into consciousness that it's a facet, a determining facet of even the most seemingly speculative and abstract philosophy. So I really like that point, Gil, actually. It's not just, it's distinct. Commodification, mm-hmm. as he's using it, is a, is a force that is distinct from just like privatizing or marketizing. Privatizing and marketizing would be a, a, the appearance. And yeah. what yeah. You know, yeah, he's yeah, trying nice. to get at is, you know, what is the logic imminent in the appearance? And so one might say that to critique you know, the sort of commodity form all the way down as, well, not everything is made available to the market. In fact, one might think the solution is, well, let's take some things off the market. And that solves the problem of, of you know, the commodity form. Lukács would say, you st- you're staying at the level of appearance. Right. You're right. not right. thinking at the level of the, the logic of the social totality, which is if he can show that even that working Kant's critique of period. Like, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yo, come on. Yeah. This is wild. 
This is wild. Yeah. But if you, if he is right and offers a compelling argument, which I do find it rather compelling, then you know, he's saying that's still a mystified way of looking at you simply stay at the level of marketization. So there might even be a kind of proto-critique here of Polanyi, but I kind of hope we do an episode on Polanyi because I think he's kind of oh, interesting. Yeah. But but yeah. So yeah. you you have to like you know, get into a richer form of mediation. I mean, so we don't need to make this all about Polanyi because that's not what this is about. But I feel like I, I think it's I think Lukács has a really compelling response to that kind of argument, and it's like already in what he's saying to Bernstein and the like kind of uh, disses he's throwing at like the emerging like social reformers in that old social democratic sense, not like in the new social democracy is distinct from socialism sense, like the old social democracy where reforms were actually going towards socialism sense. His argument against the, the social democratic reformers is like, you think that you can have this kind of progressively demarketizing a force, like, because you see this as a problem of marketization. Um, so if you push back the forces of the market and you constrain it, then you can kind of make its influence ever smaller. But I have news for you, homie. It's just going to keep mm-hmm. fighting you back, you know, yeah. and that's an, indeed what happens in social yeah. democracies, mm-hmm. right? So like, it's not a, it's not that it's impossible <laughs> yeah. to fight or contain or in, for a period of time control. It's that the commodity logic is going to keep pushing back on that because it is the dominant logic of, of the, of the social Form. So there's a gravitational force around like yeah, capital yeah. accumulation in the commodity form or the law of value that you can't just like squander away with your reforms and with the state and institutions and the law. Like in Europe, everyone asks me about the law. I swear to God, Americans never ask me about the law because our law like doesn't fucking work, you know? So, and like Europe, we don't even have it. And it's so hostile. Our law's pure vibe, yeah. baby. It's totally, vibes. pure yeah. vibe. Vibes and violence, 2022. Totally. I mean, but like this is, but so it's interesting in a, as a point of comparison because when I talk about like class conflict to Americans, like their beefs with me are totally different. No one asks about the law. In Europe, everyone asks me about the law and it's because they really think the law can control this shit you know and they're yeah. the only people sorry i'm gonna make some europeans listening mad but like they're the only population <laughs> on the planet that thinks that because there's six billion <laughs> there's 10 billion people sorry not six and they're all subject to this to to, to these imperatives and only this small population of people have been able to use the law effectively but they really think that that's you know and so that's bush that's bourgeois thinking right there there you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shit. I mean, yeah. Lukács yeah. has a whole section of the essay where he talks about how the law and the operation of the law under capitalism is also totally determined by commodity it's logic. It's commodity form. Quantity, yeah, the commodity <laughs> form, by quantification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, this is where we get like the, the critique of the like then emerging bureaucratic state where yep. he's like, how do you think that this is a check on anything? And you have that? to, you, you know, yeah, mind? the bureaucratic state under capitalism tries to like subsume ever like more complex issues under like the most violent formalization in which you have to apply in increasingly <laughs> absurd ways universal standards to very particular situations. Wow. And he says, yeah, th- yeah, that's it's a perfect critique. 
<laughs> you know, um, for some reason, just flashed in my mind the the meme of all the Spider Mans pointing at one another. No, yeah. you're the commodity. No, they're like, yeah, y'all are yeah. all the commodity yeah, structure. The, it looks like to me. Yeah. But also to like bring this back around, you can only gain this insight philosophically if you're committed to a concept of the social totality. If you are not, then there there is no no there is no way of having the insight of you can contain the market for a bit, but what you need to see is that you know, the, the language Lillian uses, the gravitational pull will push right. back. And the point that Lukacs wants to make is once you have the concept of social totality, you have the concept of transforming or overcoming whichever language you want to use, that's social logic as such. You're not simply reifying that social logic as that is just the way the world works. That is just you know, a law of nature. Right. You know, that's like you, you saying you want to overcome gravity. You're mm -hmm. not going to overcome gravity. That's just nature. And it seems to me without social totality, you can find yourself commit to the idea of saying these, are, these conditions are simply the way things are. And then you'll be constantly confused as to why when you seem to make progress in, in one arena, just like 5, 10, 20 years later, all of a sudden that starts receding. And you can start making arguments of like, well, it's just a deeply imperfect world. That's just the way it is what it is. And you can make cogent arguments like that, but then don't make any pretenses to being committed to anything like broad transformation or mm -hmm. I don't want to say revolution because I know what can be attached to that. So, but you're overcoming social totality. Just like say that you're just about this life and only this life <laughs> and we're having two different conversations. And you wish it were different, but you know. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. You'll you'll be like, you know, kind of kind of a bummer, but it is what it is. We're fallen people. XOXO. XOXO. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to start having these conversations and just be like, aha, another bourgeois antinomy. I feel you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the best of us. Yeah, I, I think you should just up. like say that as soon as they're done. You know, they're waiting <laughs> like, for a long response. Wow. like, oh, bourgeois antinomy. <laughs> Yeah, oh, Got so it. I actually Bourgeois caught myself me? having the mm. exact same thought, like sitting at, a, imagining be, going to like twenty different papers at a conference, like damn, just some, just another <laughs> bourgeois antinomy, <laughs> just, <Antinomy. another laughs> yeah. just another goddamn bourgeois antinomy. <laughs> you should just stand up and say, like, if I wanted to read a bourgeois antinomy, I would have read Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Yeah, I would have yeah. just yeah. read you, sir, are no critiques Kant. better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're no Kant. I don't know about that. Oh, man. I mean, I like the way that like he put to go to connect this back to like the law. The law example is really nice because he talks about jurisprudence. And of course, I've been thinking a lot about jurisprudence recently for obvious reasons. Again, oh. living in hell, the United <laughs> States in 2022. 2022. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but like there is like this. Where he talks about like jurisprudence, it's toward the end of the first part of the essay. And it's like this like weird, again, reified idea that like there's actually nothing for a subject to do in interpreting the law. Right. It's as yeah. though like laws are just like their sense and meaning is like a matter of objective, neutral fact right and then like lawfulness and the orderliness of like a lawful structure becomes the sort of standard form of objectivity but in this calculative rational way so like you know so-called originalism or textualism is supposed to be this like jurisprudential logic of like exempting oneself from the work of interpretation letting the thing itself speak mm -hmm. right the fucking disaka zelps <laughs> of the law mm -hmm. right just like speaks its own name and it's like that's gibberish that's not a thing that's never made any sense and like 
how do you how do you like insist at the same time that like the 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 form of you know he talks he's talks so disparagingly of professional lawyers it's very funny um <laughs> but like him. this is i think we love it yeah get him i think i think this is part of why right like this is like the the subject feels like it's once again confronted by something totally out of its out of its grasp out of its controls listen it's not me it's what the constitution said buddy and it's like, well, what is that? As though, again, that's not like a, a product of social relations expressing mm -hmm. a social totality in a determinate historical moment. Yeah. And not like a human product, but like it's, a, oh, is the Constitution of the United States of the same status as gravity? Like, what are we talking about, right? Well, Gil, have you considered the idea that maybe God wrote the Constitution? Have I you? did, but he oh. did. God did write it, but uh, qua natura naturata, not natura naturans, Okay. Wow, that's a nerdy joke. I loved it. Yeah, that one's for the six listeners who are going to click up on that. <laughs> They're howling. They're dying. They're having a ball. <laughs> I kill at very specific clubs. Yeah. Oh man, I, I love when he like gets into the the like frustration, uh, like of dealing with a totally irrational. The way he describes like a totally irrational totality with like hyper local rationalization yes local mm. like really hyper local rationalization in all these different spheres like law for example right or bureaucracy or you know obviously the market and the economy yeah the critique of bureaucracy it's a yeah, yeah. so good. and like and it's i don't know I, I just i love the kind of like contradiction between this hyper local rationality and total global irrationality comes out in all these different <laughs> forms, right? He says like, well, we, you know, at one point, I can't remember how he puts it, but he says something like, you know, in impersonating the bourgeois mind saying, you know, man, we invented this great new technology. It's like going to feed everybody. And then like starvation like increases or whatever, or like, oh, you know, you're like, oh, we invented this thing that's supposed to make, that's supposed to make a, like, we invented these machines that's supposed to make us have to work less. Oh my God. Like somehow in reality, we're all working way more, right? More. And they can never understand how these, how this happens because they don't understand what's driving the social totality and the fact that no one's driving it and like it's it has no <laughs> rational ends of its own you know what i mean it's totally yeah. beholden to the logic which determines all the isolated rationalities you know what i mean <laughs> like, yeah 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 that's so good and i think that's about so like good. you know it's and i, and I think i was thinking about the example of like the electric car like you know there's all these different like green like uh, you know technologies that we keep getting introduced to and climate change keeps like accelerating just, at faster and faster paces worse and worse. you know what i mean and it's like well, why why is this happening like and it's happened and the reason why it doesn't make any sense to us is because we have no fucking concept of like the social totality like what what is actually happening <laughs> like outs what's relating to and driving all of these isolated innovations you know yeah i'm just dying because owen is like the big totality is determining all the little it is the little it is no but it's like and it's like why we can't fucking do anything about anything like about climate change or about any any of these crises like we can't do anything because we're not we're not in charge it's a totally fucking big irrational thing that's in charge and lukach says like the division of labor the specialization of skills destroys every image of the whole. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, yeah, well, here we are. I got no idea what's going on with the whole, but ooh, I'm looking at this thing over here, and it seems like it makes a little bit of local sense. Yeah, exactly. Nothing, <laughs> let me just hyper-focus on that. I'll, let me, I'll just fixate. No, no, let me just fixate. I'm going to fixate entirely on, like, we're going to make car batteries, like, so much more efficient. I'm going to fucking <laughs> look at this shit for 10 years, and, like, eventually, if I just focus on this, the big thing will also get solved. I know it. <laughs> and but there's just like yeah. the classic you know, it hasn't worked out for anybody else 
But for us, but maybe, for but us. maybe for us. <laughs> but this is like last last pitch. This is why I think that like this philosophical move that he makes because he thinks that totality is like thought for the first time uh, in the in in Marxist thought, mm-hmm. right? And like mm-hmm. this is why you don't get you don't get to totality by adding shit up, right? It's yeah. not an additive concept. Well, the method There's, for discovering totality has come from Hegel, but only right. the method, right? Marx actually which achieved is, it, the understanding. Right. Yeah, which we love to see. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, yeah. yeah. How can you argue with that? You know, <laughs> you, you gotta love the idea of like, you know, Hegel, you know, the way he did it is cool, but he does not get credit. No, 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 no. no, 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 no. Can't, can't give him total credit. No, he's still a bourgeois thinker. He's still a yeah. bourgeois thinker. Hey, have you read the civil society chapter? I mean, no, that, that ain't it. <laughs> that ain't <laughs> it. it. The, yeah, the last thing I will say is I actually just think the philosophical concept of social totality, despite how I think, you know, in many ways has been very discredited in the contemporary formation of the academy, is deeply important mm-hmm. and worthy yeah. of you know, uh, a return to investigation. And, you know, I, it's actually the, the, the concept I use to bring my Du Bois class together, saying he's a thinker of social totality. He's trying to be, at least, for whatever, you know, um, you know his shortcomings. Mm-hmm. And when you lose that, you actually do lose the richness of a lot of historical thinkers. So yeah. I can see why people would be like Lukács was a weirdo and a dummy. If we have been, we have so lost the notion of social totality, then what he's saying, it, it, I guess it's somebody that can just like look like mysticism. It's like, what <laughs> yeah. and is shout, and, this? And shouts out to Sartre to critique a dialectical reason for, t- for like ticking up the concept of totality and totalization as well. Respect. I Always mean, a shout out. I, I also think, that episode I point. think this is right. Like I, I was just dis- so... Even in my moments where I was like fully persuaded that like the say give me like my second year in grad school, you know, where like this these were the bad ideas, the totality, this kind of subject object. Yeah, that's Levinas though. That's you know he wrote that totality and infinity and it got us all in trouble. Right. <laughs> I, I realized that like without these concepts, it wasn't that easy for me to make sense of what I think my actual like commitments have basically always been, which is that like the way that the proletariat matters to capitalism is like not as high stakes as like being the only relevant political actor or being like the only people do it who do anything ever or or the only interests that matter or even having all the same interest. Like mm-hmm. the point of it is this relationship to the universalizing tendencies of what basically drives the overall development yeah. of the society, like on yes. the whole. And so at that, if, if that's, if that's true, like that kind of um, oppositional and mutually constitutive contradiction between capital and labor. And because I do think capital basically dominates the whole face of the planet. And if that contradiction is there, then there's a really interest. There's a really uh, mm-hmm. important reason to be interested in the proletariat as a subject, as an as a potential agent, as a a thing to organize. Like all of that has always made sense to me over and against all of the various objections about difference and homogenization and, and all of this. Like I, I always kind of thought that a lot of these objections, to be honest, were like missing the point in some way. And rereading this. 
I'm like, yeah. they are absolutely yeah, yeah. missing the point because he has he's not saying anything about it of those things. There's like a there's a logic there's a deeper logical problem here with understanding the social process that he that it's at that's at stake. And it has nothing to do I mean it's it's related to, but it's like sideways of that stuff. It's not quite the same problem. And I feel like kind of right. disavowing mm-hmm. an interest in this way of thinking because it seemed arcane and like outdated was like really a hindrance in my like I don't know ability to think about it I so anyway I'll just leave it there I just wonder if people or listeners feel the same way because I found this very useful yeah I was saying before the before we came on like just now that like I I feel like I was my brain was like really continental pilled for a long time and it made it hard I would immediately see where like things that Phrases or formulations that smell of like humanism or talk of like consciousness and self-consciousness or concepts like totality and like kind of cringe a little bit. And I don't know now, I mean, when I read, when I read like Lukács and I read like stuff from this period too, I don't know. I just, I feel like I would take any amount of just kind of like vulgar expressions or things that might seem outdated or might be problematic in a certain way here or there for like thought with a clear practical horizon, thought with like clear stakes like thought that is so powerfully able to illuminate social conditions. Uh, and it, yeah, I feel like there's just a, there was, I don't know, there's a period at least for me where I feel like I got really caught up in like, you know, getting hung up on like terminology and having like meta discourse instead of like seeing yeah. what the, what's actually at issue in the thought and the extent to which it's like either helpful and illuminating or not. I don't know. Yeah. Agreed entirely. Well, I think that does it for us today. New episodes of What's Up to Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. Also check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are Bryn Gross, Nico Osaka, Colton Green, Francesca C. Shields, Mehdi Shakarchi, Isabel Meija Natividad, Noon Cousin, Paidea, Nick Clanchy, Tom O'Shea, Ben B, David Riga, Julius David Schultz, Luke Roberts, Isabel Estrada, Carter, Matthew Gordon, John, Scott Gengras, and Brian Scholl. Thank you all very much. If you too like what we're doing and want to support the show, please go to our website, leftofphilosophy.com, and hit the support button. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil, and don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye.